So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and just to kind of get you oriented to kind of where we're at in the book, this is the end of kind of the first major section of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is directly addressing division in the church, okay? And in chapter 4, he's going to address the division that's growing, not internally in the church, but between the church and him. And he's going to kind of mount a defense of himself, but in a very different way than you would expect someone to defend themselves, okay? And what I'm excited about this morning is that these scriptures are typically held and only talked about in like church leadership conferences and in pastor books and things like that. Because it's, it, it defines for us what a leader in the church is supposed to be like. And the problem with that is when we push these topics to like conferences and books that only pastors read and talk about, then what we end up with is a bunch of people who don't know how to relate. They don't know what a leader is supposed to be. And so their model becomes the world, which is a terrible model for leadership. And they don't know how to relate to their pastor and their elders or anybody in the church that has any kind of authority. And so you get all kinds of problems. Um, I have noticed one of the most consistent factors um, that makes a difference between a Christian that grows in their faith very quickly and a Christian that consistently stalls in their faith is their overall posture towards the eldership that God has placed in their lives. The people that grow, ask any pastor, and they will tell you the people that grow in their church the fastest, like meaning mature, are more stable in their faith, are more consistent in their faith, and more consistent in their knowledge of the word and their spiritual disciplines, prayer, and all these things, those people, without exception, have a good, healthy relationship with their eldership and their pastor. And the people that don't, you will find, do not have a good relationship with their pastor. I'm not trying to puff myself up here and say I'm a really big deal, right? Because what you'll see in just a minute, you'll be fully dissuaded that anyone's doing that. Because the way Paul talks about this is not to puff himself up, it's to do the opposite, okay? And so I want us to look at this, like we don't, I don't think we have a problem where, where we have division growing between, you know, the congregation and the eldership here, okay? But we do need to have this relationship defined in a biblical godly way. And if we don't have it defined that way, you suffer for it. Well, you know, so do we. So that's why we're going to get into this. And I, so I just want to encourage you to kind of don't check out because you're like, he's just talking about himself. Paul's just talking about himself. No, he's talking, he's defining. I'm going to show you how that works in just a minute. All right, so let's start with chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says this, this is how one should regard us. Us, when he says us, He's talking about himself and Apollos and these other leaders that they've been talking about previously. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful and trustworthy. So there's two words I want to focus on here that's going to help us. It's the word servants and stewards. The word servants in the preceding chapter, you might remember um, last time, it's a different word for service. Where we get the word deacon from? It emphasizes the servant nature of their ministry. It's the same word like when we talk about deacons, uh, people who serve in the church. They, they serve other people. They do 
you know, tasks you know, often that nobody else wants to do. Okay? But here Paul changes the metaphor, which is really important. It's going to become the theme of this whole sermon. He changes the metaphor to the, that of a household or a family. So he's no longer talking about just serving like as a, as a servant to people. He's talking about this a family. This is a family word. It was usually used to refer to an assistant who has the duties of administrating the affairs of another. It was sometimes translated as assistant or household servant, junior officer, or my favorite, under rower. Like on a ship. You're just, you're just the guy in the line of other guys moving the oars. You're the under rower. All right? That's the kind of servant... He's referring to himself as that, all right? There's nobody, he's not saying I'm a big deal. He's saying I'm the least big deal. Of all the other deals in the room, I am the least of them, okay? I'm the under rower, and so are the rest of us. Okay, what about the word stewards? I love this one too. This, this, this word is also a household word which denotes a steward, often a slave, who has been entrusted with managing a household. This is like a low-level, like, nanny who doesn't really have a choice. It's not like a nanny like we have now. They, they get paid well, and it's like a job. This is like a nanny that doesn't have a choice in the job of being a nanny. The nearest equivalent today is a household manager, a housekeeper, or more broadly, especially in contemporary uh, papyri, a state manager. This office normally included responsibility for overseeing a household budget, purchasing accounts, resource allocation, collection of debts, and general running of the establishment, but only as instructed within the guidelines agreed by the employer or the head of the house. He's using a very specific word. He said, I am a servant, I'm the under rower, and I'm like the assistant manager nanny of the household. That's, that's my job. Now, that's different than what we tend to think of as Paul the Apostle. He's kind of a big deal. He's running the show. He can be kind of bossy, kind of grumpy sometimes. But Paul's not describing himself that way. And he's using this household family metaphor. This is a stark contrast to the itinerant celebrity teacher culture that they had embraced in Corinth. We've talked about that in previous weeks. The thing that was going on in this church that Paul has a problem with is they have... They're, they're elevating people that seem to be really clever and witty and able to speak well. They use good words, and they put them together in a pleasant way. They're impressive. But the actual content of what they're teaching is, is missing or even unimportant to them. And then when they compare that to Paul, and Paul's not playing that game, he says, I intentionally came to you without any of those kinds of wise and persuasive words. Instead, I'm coming to you as an as a under-rower and a steward. I'm the nanny and the under-rower of your family. That's how he sees himself, and they can't, it doesn't compute to them. And they start going, maybe Paul's not really the leader we need. He's not really drawing the crowds the way we think he should. He's not really smart. He's not really charismatic in his personality. He's just not doing the stuff we think he should in order for us to be able to compete with the church down the street. So maybe he's not the guy. And instead of Paul saying, wait, 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 no, I, I, I can be that guy. He says, I'm going to double down on it and I'm going to push myself lower. This is, 
kind of the opposite of what we would probably advise them to do when there's a growing distance between him and this church. It gets worse, verses 3 to 5. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul doesn't defend himself against their investigation against him. It looks like there's something, they were like investigating, they're like talking about him almost like they're putting him on trial. He doesn't even answer their objections. What he says is, I don't answer to you at all, I answer to God. And by the way, that's far worse if he's found guilty, right? And he says, I don't even judge myself. I don't think I'm guilty of the things you're charging me with, but that actually means nothing. My judgment of myself means nothing because what really matters is what does God think of me? And that's interesting, isn't it? He says, I ultimately answer to God for the words that I preach and the, the character of my heart and if God judges me to be guilty, then I'm guilty no matter what you or me say. And the opposite is also true. In other words, who determines if a steward is being faithful and trustworthy? It's the one who owns the house and is entrust, has entrusted the steward with the responsibility to manage his affairs for him. That's who Paul answers to. So this is one of the first definitions we need to get straight that Paul is not going to preach to them what they want to hear, but he's going to preach the gospel as it has been entrusted to him by God. The truth of Scripture, the preacher's voice, and the elder's calling is not determined by what's popular in the congregation. It's important. It doesn't mean we're free agents, by the way. It just means you're not the one that called me. You're not the owner of my calling or of any of the elders in this church. God is. And ultimately, we, and that also means if you all love us, but we're failing, we're failing to be faithful to the gospel, then God says we fail. And you feel how this is counter to the celebrity culture, the pastor of celebrity, where as long as there's people coming and there's butts in the seats and everybody's happy and they like the, the way he looks on video and they like the books he writes, and he's popular, that must mean he's doing it right. And we assume because there seems to be good fruit on the surface of things, everything must be okay, and God must be pleased. And Paul would say, it doesn't matter what any of you think, or it doesn't matter how many of you think it. There's only one opinion that ultimately matters, and that is God's opinion. And if God says it's a fail, it's a fail. If God says it's a success, it's a success. Look at Jesus' ministry. He ended with like, what, 120 or so? He started with thousands. And by the time he died as a criminal on the cross, he had like around 120, 12 of which we actually know are really faithful. We wouldn't call that a win. But what would God call it, right? It's the greatest win of all time, right? And so Paul's working from that mindset so when he responds to this criticism, he doesn't respond like, how can I make you happy with me? Instead, he responds with, is God happy with me? And if God's happy with me, we're okay. 
So Paul defines his primary responsibility in terms of his faithfulness to the gospel that's been entrusted to him by God and not by his popularity with anyone else. I think this is like, have you ever had to do self-evaluations at your job? Like it's review time. This is, for a lot of people, this is review time right now. And you know, like, okay, like my, my, my boss, my manager, has probably already done a review of me and they've already decided if I'm getting a raise and how much. All that's done, right? But then they go through this whole sham of, we want you to evaluate yourself. And then we're going to meet and we're going to compare our your self-evaluation with our evaluation. And I really want you to just really fight for yourself this year. And so you're sitting there with this stupid form, right? And you're, you know this means nothing. Like whatever your manager thinks of your work performance is what's going to count when it comes to your paycheck. But you're going to do this thing and you're going to fill out the evaluation. And you're going to sit there and you're going to have this weird, awkward conversation. And then they're just going to do what they're going to do. This is what it's like when we go around going, evaluating each other and evaluating ourselves. And Paul's like, it doesn't matter what we think. What matters is what God thinks. By the way, I should point out, Paul's not telling them to never judge sin. In fact, the very next chapter, he says, why have you not judged the obvious sin in your church? I told you to judge the sin. You didn't. Now it's gotten worse. Deal with it, right? So he's not saying don't judge sin. Paul's saying that his calling and message does not come from them, but from God, okay? Then he gets sort of sarcastically aggressive, okay? This is one of my favorite Paul moments, okay? It's verse 6 through 7. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, he's saying, you're not any different from me. I'm a steward and an under rower. I'm the nanny. I'm the assistant. I'm at the bottom of the heap. And you're acting like that's not true of you, but it is true of you. If God had not given you anything, you'd be nothing. The only thing that gives you value is what God has given you, just like me. If, you're, if, if you've believed the gospel, it's because God put it in your heart to believe it. If you've heard the gospel, it's because God wanted you to hear it. If you have any gift, it's because God gave it to you. If you have any ability, it's because God gave it to you. If you're smart, it's because God made you smart. Like anything that you, you can't boast in anything, not one thing that you're good at or have succeeded at in life, can you boast in? So it's like, how, how is it that you're going to stand in judgment over me? If it's true of me, it's also true of you. He gets more sarcastic, 8, 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Now just, now put it, when you read this, read this with a sort of sarcastic voice in your head, okay? Because that's exactly how he means it, all right? Already you have become rich. 
Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that you, we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as a, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, and not in a good way. To angels and to men, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul is not trying to make a big deal about himself. He says, we are the scum of the world, tossed on the garbage heap of mankind. That is what we are. But you, Corinthians, you're kings. You're on top of it. What do you need me for? I'm just the scum of the earth. But he's already made it clear, right, in verses 6 through 7 that we just read, that they're the same. So what's he saying in a roundabout way? You're scum. <laughs> he's saying, I'm scum, and you're scum. I'm garbage, and you're garbage. I'm nothing, and you're nothing. We're just a bunch of nothings sitting on the garbage heap of the world. Not one of us can boast about anything. He's attacking their pride. You see that? He's saying, what are you so arrogant about? What do you have that you didn't receive? He's ironically entering into the same comparison as they have been. I love this only in reverse. They've been comparing, comparing Paul to these other teachers and to themselves. And he doesn't seem to measure up. And Paul does enters into the same kind of comparison, but instead he does a, a true comparison, which is when I compare you to God, you're scum. And when I par- compare myself to God, I'm also scum. Compared to God, which is the only comparison that matters, remember? It's only what the manager thinks that affects your salary. And compared to him, we're just all garbage. <laughs> we're all in the same field. So then he backs off. He's been kind of rough. He's hit them pretty hard, and he stops. And here's what he says in verse 4, or 14, excuse me. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, my dearly loved children. He's, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm not calling you scum because that should make you feel, have low self-esteem. It should actually be a joyous thing because of God, Right? And he calls them my beloved children. These are people who are aggressively attacking him, gossiping about him, turning against him. He started this church. Like, there was nothing there before he got there. He planted this church. He started this church. He's blessed this church, and he loves these people. And what he calls them is not you bunch of jerks. He calls them beloved children. He sees that. That's not demeaning. That's not like a, a head patting like, oh, you're just a little child. He means this like he's saying, we're family. Look what he says next. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many 
fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He's not demeaning Timothy either. To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Mm, the showdown coming. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Man. You want good cop or bad cop? Which is it? This reminds me of like times when I, my kids growing up where you'd hear them in the other room fighting and yelling and it just starts it's escalating more and more and you keep thinking at some point they'll stop and then you start hearing things get thrown around and bumps and you're like, oh, this, they're going to eventually, it's going to result in murder, right? So, so you go in, I would walk in there and say, all right, who wants a spanking? Anyone? Silence. No one's volunteering? All right, I'm going to walk out of the room. This is what Paul's saying. I'm coming with a rod to spank you. It's literally what he's talking about. Or we can come and we can be friends. Which do you want? But you see like the, the way Paul conceives of himself is not as a guide from a distance, but as a father. And he sees the church even when they're mad at him, as his family, like as his children, as people that he's given birth to and that he cares for and he thinks of and conceives of not as employees or constituents, but he thinks of them like, because he doesn't have any kids. He's unmarried, he has no children, and he thinks of the people in these churches, even in Corinth, as his own children. He's not speaking of this, them this way to make them ashamed. He's trying to snap them back to reality. He's acting like a father. So I want to focus on this phrase, you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I think this is the heart of the whole chapter. As I've been thinking about this, it's striking to me how this is still true. We're roughly 2,000 years later in the life, in the history of the church. And we still have this same problem. We have a multitude, like when he says many guides, the, the Greek there is like, I mean, just thousands. Like it's a, a, a number beyond, like the ultimate, the most. Like it's a huge number. It's like saying you've got you have billions of, of guides. People giving you good teaching, impressing you, entertaining you with good, you know, religious entertainment. You have people that are willing to give you advice and talk to you on a screen, but you don't have many fathers. And what you need is implied, you need fathers, not guides. And now we have even more guides than ever before because of the internet, which is actually wonderful. The fact that I can go out and I can find the best teaching on any topic on the planet and have five of them that I can sit and watch and articles I can read, commentaries I can read, all of it's wonderful, but not one of those people knows me. They're not fathers. They're not mothers. 
the model that the evangelical church culture has given us for what a church leader is, especially the senior pastor, is precisely a hired hand and not a father. The senior leaders of the church are expected to function essentially like senior executives of a company, and the congregation consists of shareholders. The shareholders are used for their financial contributions, and in turn the shareholders expect to be pleased by what the company does. What do I, what do I get for my tithe dollars? How's the Sunday school program? Is it meeting my expectations? You know, your sermon was 10 minutes longer than I prefer. I'd like, you know, I gave, I'll put a little extra in the plate this week, Pastor. Maybe next week you could, you know, trim it down a little. My latte was not to my specifications. A little too much milk, too much foam. I don't like lattes that way. You think you could talk to the barista? I'm kind of being silly, but you get the idea that mentality is baked in. And let's be honest, it's in all of us. I don't think any of us would be so silly as to complain about the latte because there are no lattes. But you see the heart of it. As one of my favorite authors and pastors, Zach Eswan, puts it, the pastors feel consumed. Many, many pastors right now feel consumed and leveraged by the congregation and not loved by the congregation. At the same time, the congregation also feels consumed and leveraged by the pastor and not loved by the pastor. That is the epidemic of the church right now. And so Paul's response to this same problem in Corinth, to this broken culture, is to continue leading even more aggressively, you could argue. But he does it while boasting in his own weakness, even to the point of calling himself scum of the world. He does not play the game. He doesn't allow them to redefine his role according to their culture, but instead he maintains a fatherly attitude towards them even as he rebukes them. I think this is really important. It is the central question, I think, if you're you know, out there, you know, I'd like to assume everybody in this room will be in this church until I die. But odds are many of us will be looking for a church one day. And after you've checked off, you know, good doctrine and, you know, Great lattes, whatever your, whatever your deal breakers are. What's the next question? Are the leaders here, do they act like fathers who love their children, or do they act like CEOs? Do they act like hired hands here to perform duties and religious services in exchange for my tithe dollars, or do they act like fathers? And if they don't act like fathers, keep moving. Go somewhere else. I think that's what Paul would tell you. It's not legitimate leadership the way he sees it. So let's talk about Living Hope Church for a minute. Because I want to get real practical, real specific. Okay? I know for sure okay, that your elder team loves you like their own children. I think that is true of every single one of them. And if it wasn't, they would not be elders. I know this because I know what makes them cry. I can reliably make every one of them cry Whenever I want to, that sounds awful the way I'm putting it, but it's that, it's that true about every single one of them. If I start telling them some story of one of you that has had some kind of breakthrough in their life, 
suddenly you're just reading the Bible, you finally started to read the Word for the first time. Or the light came on about some parenting issue, or your marriage had a breakthrough. I just tell them a short 30-second snippet of your breakthrough, and they will reliably cry, just like Jamie is right now, just thinking about me doing it. Look at him. He's just thinking about the possibility of me telling him such a story. He's already tearing up, and he can't help it. That's how fathers act. If you're a father, the older you get, the more you cry about your kids. When they have a moment, when they have a breakthrough, hired hands don't do that. So I know that's for sure, and I think most of you probably feel that, okay? We get a lot of things wrong, but I'm confident that we get the truly important, necessary things right. However, (laughs) most of you don't know how to relate to a father. And it shows. And we don't tend to have high expectations for that, and it shows. So I want to help us with that. Some practical implications. Number one, we as elders and leaders need to drop the apologetic tone when we ask you to lay your life down to serve the church, whether it's in a meeting context or some other need in the LHC family. I've been really blessed by, I'm going to say it again, he keeps telling me not to, but it's a wonderful example. I'm going to give you lots of examples. Randy Cowan building that sound booth back there. It became a much bigger job than he expected it to be. And I kept being tempted when I see him up here another time, working on it, to apologize to him. And say, I'm really sorry that you have to do this. I'm really, maybe, I, you know, I just feel, you know, I'm really sorry. And he was never wanting to be, it annoys him to even think that I might say I'm sorry. But why would I be sorry? He is using the gifts God gave him to serve the church. Is there anything better any of us can do with our time? There is literally nothing you can do with your time that is more important than that. I'm not saying that's all that that Randy has to offer, but it's one thing he has to offer, and he used it for God. And the fact that God stretched it out even farther just means Randy gets to be used by God even more. Like the longer and the more hard it is, the more God uses it. You're just getting to use your gift longer. And that's on, that's on me. That's on us for not having that perspective. Well, you're busy. I don't want to ask you to do another thing. It's terrible. You never see Paul acting that way. Conversely, you need to stop waiting to be asked and begin to actively look for a need you can fill without being asked. Let your gifts lead the way. Waiting to be asked is how corporations work, not families. Example, recent example. My son, Owen. He's like, great. This is positive. It's perhaps the first positive example I've given of Owen. I mean, he's, I'm kidding. Yesterday, he's hanging out at the house. Me and Heather were out doing things. Really important things, how drinking coffee with friends, really important. And <clears throat> he decides without being asked, he had heard me talk about the gutters needing to be cleaned, and he goes out and he cleans the gutters without being asked. Yeah. Yeah. I see all the, the dads in the room are crying right now. 
<clears throat> not because they're moved by Elam, but they just don't know why it never happens for them, right? <laughs> That's how families work, right? Corporations, if you've got a job in a corporation where you evaluate yourself and your boss evaluate that whole thing, you're not going looking for stuff to do. You're just keeping your head down. Don't be the tallest blade of grass. You would cut first. Is it a corporation or a family? Number three, we need more fathers and mothers to act like spiritual fathers and mothers. If I look around the room, this church does not have a shortage of people that have been walking with Jesus for a very long time. We don't have a shortage. But many of you are letting your fathering and mothering years slip past you as you wait for someone to ask you to mentor them or give you permission or whatever it is you're waiting for to happen. And the years slip by, those, those prime, like, mothering and fathering, spiritual mothering and fathering years where you kind of sorted out some stuff, you've been saved for a long time, and you kind of know what works and what doesn't, how to raise kids, and, and what, what makes people go off sideways, and what doesn't, what protects you and what doesn't, what works, what doesn't. You let those years slip by, and then they're gone. Don't do that. Because I think in Paul's conception of the church we'll see this in verse chapter 12 to 14 it's not he's not the only father it's a whole body right and without the whole body working together this thing doesn't work so i want to encourage those of you who look at yourself okay i've been saved for a minute what am i doing who am i giving this i don't want what i have to die with me I don't want to be morbid, but that's the truth. I don't want the deposit that God has put in my life and the lessons I've learned and what I've gained in life and all the mistakes I've made to just die with me. And I have people stand over my grave and go, wow, that's great. You were saved for 25 years, and that'd be it. I want my graveside to be surrounded by people who are my spiritual sons and daughters, not just by my kids. He said, I have what he had. He gave it to me. He put that in me, and now I carry it forward. That's what I want. That's Paul's perspective. That's how fathers and mothers think. Just start filling your time with people and watch what God does. I think in particular, by the way, in this church, in Living Hope, men, this is our weakness. The ladies are doing this. But guys, I'm putting the bullseye on you. We're weak here. You got a deposit, give it away. That just means, you know, having coffee. If you don't like coffee, have water, you know, sweet tea. Like um, having lunch. If you don't like lunch, you don't have time for lunch, have dinner. If you don't have time for dinner, do something. Just find a way to fill your time, all this time you got. You got time. Don't you, and if you're too busy, stop it. Like, just stop. Lay that idol down. Like, do like when you die. No, nobody ever says, "I wish I'd worked more or been more busy." You say, "I wish I'd spent more time." And so I want to encourage you to wake up to that and think of yourself as a father and a mother in the body of Christ, in the same way Paul thinks of himself. So if you don't know, on the other side of that, if you don't know how to relate to a father or mother, let me help you with some very, very practical advice, okay? If I could control your life, here's what I would have you do, all right? One, pick someone more mature in God than you and more mature in life 
even if it's just by like a small margin. Ask if you can meet with them for lunch or coffee or whatever. I don't care. Go for a walk. I don't know, throw their frisbee, whatever it is you, you do. Ask them to meet up with you. Tell them you just want to get to know them and ask them advice. They will say yes. They will. They will say yes. Even if they don't want to and they're nervous, they will not say no. They will say, oh, okay. <laughs> their voice will go up a little higher. Okay, I don't know what you're going to ask me. I feel like, oh, okay. But they will say yes. Then, I told you I'm being practical. Put this on your calendar. <laughs> All right? With a reminder set. Get a notebook. You might have to go to Walmart. They also sell these on Amazon. Get a notebook and write down some questions for them. Like, what would you do in this situation kinds of questions? Write down some weaknesses in your life that you need to help with. What do I need to confess about myself that will give them an idea of how I need help? Get there early. Buy them lunch or coffee. Amen? If you can. If you can't, don't. Don't worry about it. Bring your notebook and ask your questions. Make notes about what they say. Trust me, it is not weird. It's honoring of the time for you to actually be serious enough about this moment and about them and what God's put in them to actually write down what they say and have prepared for it. That's a good thing to do. Endeavor to only ask questions, those of you who like to monologue. I'm going to spend the next hour with this person, and I'm not going to pontificate about myself and what I think and what I do and what, I, what my opinion is. Instead, I'm going to remember that the point of this was for me to ask them questions. <laughs> and I'm going to ask loads of questions, as many questions as I can squeeze in to this time that I have with them. Ask about the, their life, their struggles, their best day, their worst day. Ask their opinion of you. Ask how they overcame things, how they raised their kids if they have them. Ask them about mistakes. Ask them for clarification if there's something you don't understand. Ask, 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 ask. It is the key to mentoring is asking questions. And it's the key to being mentored is asking questions. Give it an hour, hour and a half at the most. And then thank them. Thank you for spending time with me. And then if you liked what they said and it seemed to go well, do it some more. If not, don't do it again. Like, what did you lose? You didn't lose anything. If it's awkward and weird and there's no, like, flow, and you're like, oh, you didn't lose anything. You got lunch. <laughs> you had a conversation. You, you got... Something they have rubbed off on you, whether you see it or not, and you don't have to do it again, but you can. Number five, you should be meeting with one of the elders at LHC at least once a year. Now, I'm not making that a law. I'm not keeping track. But I want to help you very practically. Because I recognize that if you didn't have a father that you had a good relationship with, and you didn't have a mother that you had a good relationship with, you don't understand this kind of stuff. That years and years should not go by in your life without having ever like sat down with and had focused time with one of the elders, and it's one of the people who is a shepherd in your life. Like just to say, hey, here's what's going on. 
You know what I love is people that want to meet with me and it's not some emergency. I'm not saying I don't like dealing with your emergencies, all right? That's not what I'm saying. But it's a wonderful thing. When somebody says, hey, you know, I've got this going on and just trying to make these decisions and here's how my kids are doing and here's how my marriage is and, you know, what do you think? Like, I'm on track, you know? And just have that conversation. It's wonderful. It's like talking to your dad or how you dream of talking to your dad. That's how that relationship is supposed to be. If you have a big life decision to make, ask for an hour of our time. You aren't asking permission to live your life, okay? Don't get weird. You're treating us like you would a father. You know, what's the one thing people always say after their father dies? Everybody without exception. Who am I going to call when I have a real problem? Now that he's gone. It tells you something about what we're supposed to be doing with fathers. When you got a big decision, you don't bear that decision by yourself alone, hoping that you get it right. Like, let the person who paid, as they call it, the stupid tax, the person who got it wrong before you, and say, hey, when, 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 I, when you change jobs, what do you do? How do you quit? How do you leave a church? We were talking about that yesterday. Not that I'm leaving the church. We're just talking about, in general, people don't know how to leave churches. They just sort of vaporize. <laughs> like, smoke goes up, and you're just like gone, and you're like, what happened? People don't know how to join churches. They don't know how to have friends for a long period of time. We move around. Like, I think it should be normal that people stay in churches for over 10 years at a time. That's not normal right now. Like, how, relationships don't get good until you get 10 years in. And you realize when you get to be 45 that 10 years is nothing. It's like I can nap and wake up and 10 years went by. So you see, see, see how when you start thinking of it as a father and a son or a father and a daughter, or a mother and a son and daughter. It changes the dynamic of how it should operate. I want to give you another recent example. Um, Christina Rios, I don't think she's in here, but I did ask her if I could give this example earlier. But she's quit her job and decided to go back to school. And not just go back to school, but eventually go and get her master's degree for Christian counseling. She's had this thing bubbling around in her heart for a while, right? That's a big decision, isn't it? She did not just announce this. Like, this is what I just did. What she did instead is she, you know, talked with her husband, obviously, and her family, and they decided they really liked the idea. But then she said, can I meet with the elders at one of your elders' meetings? Not asking for permission. This is not a cult. But she sees us as father figures in her life. And when you make a big decision, you call your dad and say, what do you think about this decision? So she called and she just asked us, what do you think about this? Are you happy about this? What do you think? You think this is a good idea? And we sat around and talked for a few minutes. Jamie cried again. <laughs> Alan cried, you know, oh, I saw you when you were this big, that whole thing. Talking like dads. Just excited for her. Asked her what her heart is. Like, what is she, why is she doing it? What, what's God been putting in her heart? What, Israel, what do you think? And he's like, I'm excited, you know. And 
And, there's this whole, and then we sat there and prayed for her and blessed her, and she walked out. Now, how is that not just a wonderful, there's no downside to that. And so for those of you who never knew how to relate to a father, and now you're in churches and you don't know how to relate to godly elders in a church that wants to be like a family, this is how you do it. Okay? And if you do these sorts of things, these little things, what happens is it unlocks, one, it unlocks the gift in us. I always talk about Charlie Davis many years ago asking me for advice, Charlie and Gail asking me advice about their grown kids. And I only had kids this big. It was the first person to ever ask me for advice as a pastor. And they're like grandparents to me. And I'm sitting there going, I want you to tell me how to raise my kids, and you're asking me about you, and Gail says to me, you're my pastor. And out of my mouth comes, I don't know, some wisdom from somewhere. <laughs> Not from my experience, but out of the gifting and the place God had put in me, because God had made me a father in this house before I even had any qualifications to be one. And Charlie and Gail in their experience, had figured that out a very, very long time. And it didn't matter to them. They were calling on the Father call on me, not on me. And when they asked me the question from that place, wisdom came out of my mouth that had nothing to do with me. That, don't, don't you want that? I want that. I've had that experience with my earthly father many times, asking something, but I know he's got no idea what to tell me. Because I'm not a spring chicken either. <laughs> he told me one time, when you go to the hospital, just act like you know what you're doing. I said, that's the best advice I ever heard. <laughs> just fake it. I have faked it with so many of you so many times. Like, I know what I'm doing. And then out of that just comes some kind of help from God. And so Paul is coming to Corinth, and he's trying to tell them, like, this is how it should be. Like, I should be a father, you should relate to me as a father, not as this professional that you rate on their, their performance and compare to other professionals, and that that's how you decide who belongs and who doesn't. He says, that is not how this thing is supposed to work. I'm supposed to be a father, it's supposed to be a family. And so I want to challenge us to, like, look at the way we think about church and ask yourself, how is that culture that we still live in with the same problems, how has that affected the way you relate to one another and relate to the church? All right. All right, why don't we stand up and pray together? God, first, just on my heart, I just pray for uh, people here in this church and those watching online that have experienced like a, just a lot of pain and hurt from pastors and elders and church leaders, small group leaders in the church that have related to them not as fathers and mothers but as hired hands and have hurt them, neglected them. God, people that bore the title of pastor but not the actual life of a pastor. God, I pray that you would bring healing and restoration to them. 
God, these sorts of hurts right now are just becoming so public and infamous that it's just disheartening. And so many people right now are tempted to just leave the church altogether and never come back. God, I just pray right now that you would reach out to those people and show them that you yourself are critical of that. That this is not, this does not represent how it's supposed to be. God, that you would heal those wounds and draw people into the family of God. God, I pray that Satan would not be allowed to separate people out from the church in these days either over political anger or church hurt or disappointment or frustration. God, all these things that the world divides over, God, I pray over us that would not be true. And God, that you would start by making this house a unified house that is a family and not a religious corporation. God, guard us. Guard us from that temptation. God, I pray that we would not cater to that culture at all. God, that we would not bend to it as Paul refused to bend to it. But instead, God, we would stand before you as our only judge. God, that we would be faithful with the gospel you've entrusted to us, every single one of us. God, I pray for restoration in those father-son, mother-daughter relationships. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.